This morning was a very tragic one for us. Two cruise missiles hit Kharkiv, the city which is located to the borders of the Russian Federation. There were always many Russians there, and they're always friendly. There were warm relations there. More than 20 universities are there. It's the city that has the largest number of universities in our country. This is called the Freedom Square. Can you imagine this morning two cruise missiles hit this Freedom Square? Dozens of killed ones. This is the price of freedom. We are fighting just for our land and for our freedom. Despite the fact that all large cities of our country are now blocked, nobody is going to enter and intervene with our freedom and country. And believe you me, every square up to today, no matter what it's called, it's going to be called, as today, Freedom Square in every city of our country. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. Those comments you just heard came from earlier this morning when Ukrainian President Zelensky vowed not to allow the Russian invasion to break him and his people in response to the bombings of Freedom Square in Kharkiv during a powerful speech to the European Parliament that reduced the translator to tears. The speech came just hours after Zelensky submitted an application to the European Union to grant Ukraine immediate membership into the EU. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, March 1st. And as that opening recording portrayed, we've moved from the democracy waiting moment last week to a time of intense action today. So not only are we looking at uh, Ukraine, but also tonight, President Biden will deliver his first State of the Union. You know, most people are expecting Biden to articulate he's proud of the year's progress, to try to be realistic and empathic about the pain that people are still feeling, and patriotically confident about the nation's ability to address challenges, both domestic and international. Now, generally, State of the Unions are pretty domestic in their orientation. Talk a lot about what's happening at home and then a kind of review of actions outside our country. But with Ukraine on top of everyone's minds, many are expecting this to sound more like a wartime State of the Union than a traditional domestic-oriented one. So first big topic people are talking about on the domestic front is Biden addressing response to the growing concerns about inflation and fatigue about the pandemic. You know, many Americans are increasingly expressing their frustration over pandemic restrictions and officials across the country, including many Democrats, have begun to relax prevention measures. They actually announced yesterday that masks will be optional tonight at the State of the Union itself, and the entire congressional body has been invited to attend, unlike last the last few years, although guest attendance will remain prohibited as a COVID safety protocol. You see California, Oregon, Washington are ending school mask mandates, and even places like the White House itself have announced they're dropping mask mandates for vaccinated employees. So whether this becomes a true tipping point and a move to a different state of grappling with COVID remains to be seen. People will be looking for clues during the State of the Union tonight. 
moving from domestic issues, Biden's also expected to really focus on the steps they have taken to threaten Russia's financial stability, trying to force Putin to reassess the cost if he doesn't end the military advance in the Ukraine. Biden's taken an increasingly stark and despairing tone in his assessment of Russia's invasion, promising to impose on both the Kremlin and the economic elite, the most severe sanctions the nations have ever seen. Yesterday, we know that officials from Ukraine and Russia met at the Belarusian border. The talks lasted for hours, and it didn't lead to a ceasefire, but they have agreed to keep talking, even as the EU considers Ukraine's application for membership in the EU. As we see these kind of escalation of sanctions in ways that really no one envisioned three or four days ago. In just a couple of days, you've seen Russia become a real international outcast, and the actions are way more diverse and far-reaching than people expected, and really pushed along by how interconnected the world is that we're living in today. And some of this has been financial, so Russian banks are being ejected from SWIFT, the Biden administration's freezing the Russians' central bank assets in the U.S., and even Switzerland has just announced it's departing from its usual policy of neutrality to freeze Russian assets in its banks. And that meant that this morning, Russia's central bank raised its key rate from 9.5% to 20% in a really desperate effort to try to stop a run on the banks, as you're already seeing incredibly long lines of Russians trying to pull cash out of the banks. Plane traffic is restricted over Europe, and Ukrainian forces have stopped Russia from really dominating and controlling airspace over Ukraine, and even things as broad as participation in international sports from soccer to hockey is being limited after the International Olympic Committee called on sports organizations to exclude Russian athletes from international events. It's a movement you haven't seen in the sports world in decades. And close to home, even things like vodka, may no long, Russian vodka may no longer be welcome in many U.S. states. Um, so this all took place against the backdrop of a social media landscape that gives us a chance to observe what's happening directly and informally in a way that many past conflicts we've never seen. And it's a, frankly being called a force multiplier effect. So when the governor of Maine decides to prohibit the sales of Russian vodka, it starts to ripple in different ways. It's also been a more complicated dance for social media. You're seeing companies like Facebook or Meta, Google, TikTok, banning Russian state media or tagging posts as coming from Russian propaganda outlets. But they're also to, at the same time, they're trying to end state-sponsored propaganda and stop misinformation. They don't want to push so hard that Russia cuts its citizens off from these platforms altogether, which have been a key source of information for Russians living inside Russia about what is going on when the, otherwise they would only get one-sided state-issued news. So it's a balancing act and a continuing conversation and another facet to look at the impact of social media in our democracy and in global democracy and political organizing. How do you police a system that also has state control? We're also expecting Biden to talk about the nomination of Judge Kentaji Brown-Jackson, his pick to replace Stephen Breyer on the Supreme Court. Jackson would be the first black woman to be nominated to the high court. She's currently on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, often seen as a proving ground for future Supreme Court justices. And the big question is, what's going to happen with her nomination battle? Lindsey Graham, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski all voted in her favor for her nomination just a few months ago. And so whether you'll see actually a few Republicans cross the 
party line and vote for her confirmation in the Supreme Court remains to be seen. Whether that battle becomes really marked by some of the sexist and racist comments that have started to come from the edges of the Republican Party, or whether it quietly moves through, will have a big impact on how this Supreme Court nomination impacts the midterm elections. It won't change, obviously, the makeup of the Supreme Court's ideological balance, but it would mean that for the first time ever, all the Democratic nominated justices on the Supreme Court would be women. Not only are we seeing the war in Ukraine continue to escalate, are we seeing the State of the Union tonight and the ripple effects of that? We're also seeing primaries kick off today. So Texas hosts the first set of primaries in the midterm elections, uh, and there's a lot to watch. Polls will be closing at 8 p.m. Eastern in most of Texas, 9 p.m. in the far edge that's in mountain time. Some of the things people are watching, will Governor Abbott secure the Republican nomination outright? Might he even see a landslide in the primary? It is He will go up against Beto in the general election, but people are seeing him as very strong, and the question is how strong. And this will be an indication not just from polls, but from voters. The attorney general race, also <laughs> really complicated. You know, Paxton, the uh, incumbent, has been under indictment since 2015 for securities fraud, although the case is still awaiting trial. He's also under FBI investigation about using his office to aid a wealthy ally, and he's facing a whistleblower lawsuit from several former senior aides. But Trump has been more focused on the fact that Paxton spearheaded an unsuccessful lawsuit to overturn Biden's victory. So Trump is supporting Paxton, even though he's facing three different uh, investigations and lawsuits. And the question is, with him squaring off against multiple, three different primary foes, will one of them be able to break through or not? You have to get 50% of the vote to avoid a runoff in the Texas primary. So this may end up going to runoff status. Similarly, 10 or 12 close congressional primaries. Most of those on the Republican side, um, with most of the competition on the Republican side about how to be the most Trumpian conservative in many different crowded primaries, because there's now more safely Republican gerrymandered seats under the new congressional maps. There's also a few key Democratic primaries to watch. Uh, biggest one is progressive challenger Jessica Cisneros, who's going again against Representative Henry Cooler, who's one of the most conservative members of the Democratic caucus. She came within points of upsetting and taking him out last time around, but the race was really shaken up earlier this year when in January the FBI raided the congressman's home and his campaign headquarters about an investigation into his ties with Azerbaijan. So whether she can actually unseat this long-standing conservative member of the Democratic caucus and shift this seat to be one, a progressive one. Interesting question. I'm personally hoping for it, but we'll have to see what happens tonight. Now, beyond these kind of headlines, beyond the, you know, the State of the Union, Ukraine, Texas primaries, last thing I want to talk about today is some of what's happening around voter suppression and gerrymandering that hasn't gotten national attention. Two things in particular. In Texas, as we look at the results of these races, we're also going to see this is the first election under Texas's new, what I would call voter suppression law, SB1, which required Texans voting by mail to provide either their driver's license number, state ID, or the last four digits of their social security number, which then must match the number they provided on file or be thrown out. 
They've already seen thousands of ballots in Harris County, one of the most populous counties in Texas, flagged with problems around these matches. And they could see a double or tripling of the number of ballots that are rejected because of this. Of course, Republicans have claimed this is needed for election fraud, to prevent election fraud, even though no data shows that it happens at any appreciable level. But the real question is, will it be successful, as many people have argued, in suppressing Democratic votes as it was intended? So we're going to have some first insight into actually how this plays out in practice here in Texas. The other thing is that Republicans in both North Carolina and Pennsylvania have now filed very similar appeals to the U.S. Supreme Court in the last few days, asking the Supreme Court to overturn decisions by the state Supreme Courts about their congressional maps under a pretty you know, radical legal theory known as independent state legislature doctrine. So it's based on a pretty kind of out there reading of the Constitution that says state legislatures are supreme against all other actors that might run elections, meaning that their decisions regarding elections cannot be checked by any other branch, including their own state Supreme Courts interpreting their own state constitutions. It's a very anti-democratic argument, but it has gained traction among several uh, far-right justices, including some of those on the Supreme Court in some earlier cases. So. If we see precedent followed, these cases will be thrown out. But if we don't, it's another attack on the fair administration of elections and particularly on gerrymandering right now, but also on how states manage their election processes in the future. Something to be hopefully not concerned about because it should be thrown out, but if not, a very dangerous precedent that we could be seeing and something that hasn't made national headlines at all. So. That's all for this week's packed review of developments in our democracy. I'm Jason Franklin. I look forward to talking with you again next week on 10 Minutes on Democracy as we swing into gear in the midterms and the fights for the future of democracy, both here at home and globally. Have a great day. Take care.